How we doing? I had a friend of mine say this morning, he said, man, you put on a coat and look how many people showed up. <laughs> Obviously, we're here for something way bigger than that, way greater than that, and that's to celebrate Jesus being resurrected and the fact that we have life in him. What an awesome thing that we get to celebrate, not just today, but every day. Uh, that for those of us who are called by his name, who are in him by faith, not by what we can do, but by what he's done, what a great privilege we have that we can um, celebrate every day the life we have and know that he's living in us, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in us right now. That's so incredible. And what an awesome thing to be able to celebrate, to be able to celebrate Sean's baptism, man, what a great thing to be able to see somebody publicly profess and give an outward demonstration of what God has done on the inside of them, that even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. What an awesome God that while we were enemies and weren't mindful of him, he was mindful of us and gave his son to die for us. What an incredible thing. I'm going to preach two messages if I don't shut up. So today we're going to be looking in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Jesus at this point has been crucified. Um, God has raised him from the dead. God accepted the, 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 the price that Jesus paid. The one who had no sin became sin so we could become the righteousness of God. And in that, um, God accepts that sacrifice of Christ and he raises him from the dead, giving him new life. And the Bible says that he's the first of many who will experience that resurrection life. And uh, so incredible. So this is where we're at. Mary Magdalene has just gone to the tomb and found it empty. She actually encounters Jesus. And in John chapter 20, verse 18, which is where we're going to start reading, Mary goes back to the other disciples. And this is what happens. It says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now I want you to listen real closely and follow along with this. I want you to really pay attention to how many times it talks about what they saw. How many times it says something like, um, I have seen or they saw. It says on the evening of that first day, this is the first Easter, first resurrection day, that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them, notice that, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have, what? Seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Listen to what Thomas said. He said, 
my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today that we can gather in the name of Jesus, that we can celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty, that we can celebrate the fact that Jesus lived the life we could not live. He took our sin, that even though he had no sin, even though he'd done no wrong, the spotless, blemishless Lamb of God went to the cross and took our sin. Lord, that he took our punishment for the sin, the condemnation, the judgment that was due us. Lord, we thank you for that. God, I thank you that even though he was placed in a tomb and his body was cold and dead and lifeless, death could not hold him down. I thank you, Lord, that your spirit uh, breathed life into him and he was raised again. And that God, now, because we are in him, we have the promise of resurrection. Lord, I pray we would do exactly what these passages say. And we would be sent just as Jesus was sent. And that, God, we would proclaim the gospel that through which sins are forgiven, through which people are set free, through which dead people come to life, those who are spiritually dead, God, that they come to life and live, reborn through the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray you'll speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to start out asking this question. How many of you can think of things that maybe are so big they're hard to wrap your mind around, right? There's a lot of things that are so big that it's hard to get our mind around those things. I want to show you some example of these things. Uh, these things are what I would call um, somewhat abstract. And when I say abstract, this is what I mean. Even though um, they exist in our thought, they're more like an idea, but they don't necessarily have a concrete existence in our lives. So it's more like a, a thought or an idea that, okay, that exists, but it doesn't really um, have this concrete existence. It's more theoretical than it is like real to us. And, and so that's what I mean when I say something that is abstract. That's what I'm talking about. And there are a lot of these things, probably a lot more than what we realize. So here's one of them. Um, how about outer space? How vast and big, right? Can you really wrap your mind around this? Especially when you start thinking about how small we are in the vastness of the universe. It's kind of hard to wrap our mind around that. Things like that are abstract. We talk about them sometimes as though they're mind boggling, right? So we can't get our mind around it. It's abstract to us. How about this one? I looked up the richest people in the United States. How about this guy? Started an e-commerce business in his garage, Jeff Bezos. Now he's worth over $201 billion. Can you wrap your mind around that kind of money? Anybody got that money in their account? Like, I don't. I don't. Like, it, it would be like way over here, right? <laughs> That's more like where, this is where I live, right here. Check account every morning. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. But you can't wrap your mind around that kind of money. How about this one? The national debt 
$21 trillion and counting. I'm not getting political here. Let's not go there. But it's mind-boggling. It's hard to wrap our mind around that large of a number. How about this? How about eternity? How about it just keeps going? There's no beginning and no end. How do you wrap your mind around that? It's something that's so big. It's mind-boggling. It's abstract. It's it's something that, that almost doesn't feel real. And as I started going through these, I'm pulling up pictures of different things. I decided, hey, I know, let's Google God and click on image. Because he's big. And, And I did this, and this is a lot of what I found. For some reason, God is like this old guy with gray hair, big beard. This old man that's just kind of looking down. And sometimes he looks pleased, and then other times he looks like this. And unfortunately, this is kind of our concept of God, right? That he's just walking around. I don't know if that's a pool stick. I don't know what that is. But he's just walking around waiting on us to mess up and then whap. But it's one of those things that's big. It's it's hard to wrap our mind around. And here's the thing. We look at these things and... We need to remember that even though they're mind-boggling, we can look at these things. We can look at space. We can look at net worth. We can look at debt, eternity. We can look at these things, and even though I can't wrap my mind around them, they still exist. But the challenge for us is this, that things that are abstract become easily indeterminate. And what I mean by that is they become vague. They become obscure. They, They can become uncertain, even doubtful. Uh, you know, you begin to wonder about those things. And then when that begins to happen, they become impersonal, personal. They, they become distant. They become detached. They become withdrawn. They're just somewhere far off there. And when that happens, they become impractical. Those things like, like space and how big it is, they really don't affect my day-to-day life. I don't think about space expanding and being huge and vast when I make day-to-day decisions. I've never gone to put my little bit of money in the bank and thought about how much money Bezos has, right? I've never gone and put my money in the bank and thought about the national debt or how big space is. It it just becomes impractical. It doesn't affect my day-to-day life. And here's the problem, though, with that. The problem is when it comes to God and he becomes abstract. When God is abstract, he becomes an idea and not a reality in our life. And when God becomes obscure, it makes me uncertain about his presence in my life. And when God is just a vague idea, he's just this distant, detached, withdrawn figure rather than a personal God who walks with me and talks with me throughout my day, becomes troubling. God becomes this withdrawn, detached, vague idea. He becomes impractical. And the God that's up there doesn't seem very real down here. When that happens, God, if... He exists to us, matters really very little in my day-to-day life. And all of this ends up causing me to kind of hedge my bet with God. 
because I don't want to bet my life on something or someone that seems obscure, detached, withdrawn. It makes the Bible become a bunch of just convoluted words, just confusing, and I can just dismiss them as too confusing and outdated, and the Bible itself becomes abstract. And if we're honest, here's the thing, if we're honest, the reality for us is this, that in a way, many people like to have an abstract God. Because we love the idea of a God who'll get us into heaven and gives us some sense of security. But we also love the idea of not having the responsibility to live for him or have him impact our everyday life. Think about this. Today, we're here to celebrate the resurrection of a dead man that none of us have ever physically seen. Today, we're here to celebrate a God who you've never physically laid eyes on. Let me ask you, does that seem odd? Now, if you grew up a Christian, maybe you haven't really thought about that. And I'm not trying to plant seeds of doubt in your mind, but truth never fears a challenge. But to someone from the outside who, who knows nothing about this, we're here to celebrate the life and death and resurrection of someone we've never physically laid eyes on, to worship a God we've never physically seen. Should we be more like Thomas? That unless I see, unless I touch, unless I can feel, then I'll never believe. Here's the crazy thing about it. As abstract as God may seem to some, and even though people, so many people throughout history have never set their eyes on the resurrected Jesus physically. Here's what's wild. There have been billions of people during the last 2,000 years that would have or did give their lives for the belief that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. There are many people in this room right now who have not only bet their eternal life on this as the truth, but would give their physical life rather than deny it. The Bible records over 500 people, 500 plus people who saw Jesus resurrected. Today, there are more than two and a half billion people in the world who claim to be Christians. That's not even counting all the billions who lived before us. And out of all these two and a half billion people, we realize that the Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a core tenet, the core tenet of Christianity. And from 500 plus to today, two and a half billion who would say, yes, that is what I believe. How does that happen? <laughs> if we've never seen and never touched and never felt 
How does that happen? How is Christianity still the fastest growing religion in the world? How have billions upon billions of people come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God? How in the world have they come to the conclusion that he is the Savior of the world, that Jesus died for our sins, and that God raised him on the third day? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time showing you. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, Verse 13, this is at Jesus' baptism. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now go to John chapter 1, verse 29. This is speaking about John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, when we look at this, this is incredible. And the reason it's incredible is because it gives us a pattern. We see a pattern in these passages. And here's the pattern that I want to point out to you. It is this, that the Father reveals the Son through the Spirit. The Father reveals the Son through the Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working. Jesus is in the water. He is baptized. The heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the Father speaks over him. And he says, this is my Son whom I love. With him, I am well Please, we come over to John chapter one and John says, when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he's the one who's come to bear our sin, to take it from us that we can have life. And he says, though, I would not have known him, but I saw the spirit descend upon him. And the father had told me, the one on whom you see the spirit come down and remain, that is the Messiah. That is the Son of God. That is the anointed one. That is the one who I have sent to make all things right. And so the Father revealed the Son through the Spirit to John. And ever since then, the Father has been revealing the Son through his Holy Spirit. This is the pattern that we see. This is how God goes from being a God who is vague and obscure 
just an idea and detached from my reality and that matters very little in my life to being my God who is personable, knowable, and so ingrained in the fabric of my life that he is my life. Romans 10, 17 tells us this, that faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the message, the word of Christ. In other words, when this gospel is preached, and that's what John said in John chapter 20, the apostle John said that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded. But he says, these things that I've written are written that you may believe. So that when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed and the message is preached, the word who became flesh, the word is still anointed. The word still has power. And when the Father reveals the Son through the Spirit, it brings faith. And by faith, we are made right. In fact, Romans 10, 9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, that we will be saved. And that word saved is so loaded. It means so many things. It really means to heal us, to bring us to wholeness. We're made right with God, righteous, made as we ought to be, as we were intended to be, brought into the family of God once again, saved from sin, hell, death, and the grave, and promised life eternal with Jesus, given a purpose that's greater than ourselves, filled with the very presence of God, the resurrection power of Jesus, saved from ourselves, given the Spirit of God that gives us a new heart and an affection and love for Jesus and for God and for his purposes. And when the word is preached, when forgiveness of sins and life is declared through Jesus, the Father still reveals the Son through the Spirit as Sean. here's the thing, many, 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 many people will maintain this attitude that unless I see the marks, I won't believe. Unless I can put my finger in the wound, I won't believe. Unless I can see his side and see his, where it was pierced, I won't believe. I can't believe. Many people will still make this declaration that seeing is believing, but understand this, that's not faith. Because the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse one, tells us that faith is having a confidence in what God has promised, that it's an assurance of what we cannot see. And that is the faith that comes from hearing the gospel when the Father reveals the Son through the Holy Spirit. And look, I get it. Like, it's hard sometimes, right? It's hard sometimes. We, we say, but, but seeing is believing. And we hear that all the time. But here's the thing I would challenge you with. Every person in here, every day, you find assurance and you believe in things that you cannot see. Every day. The world is full of things that you are assured of that you 
cannot see. How about this? How many of us need this? How many of you are glad you have this? How many of you can see this? Now, if somebody's got real bad breath around you, you can see it. I'm not talking about that. But how many of you, we can't see it, but do we need it? Yes. Do we know it's here? Yes. How about this? Have you ever been cold and you felt the heat from a fire? The warmth. When you sit there and the warmth is coming. And look, you don't really see the heat. You see the flame. But you feel the warmth. How about this? We're getting close to summer. How many of you thank God for air conditioning? How many of you know if we had to go back 100 years ago, in the life we've lived now, we would all die? (laughs) We are an air-conditioned people. And in the summer, the, the South Georgia summers, we are thankful for the air conditioning, that cool air blowing on us, but I don't see it. How about this one? Gravity. Remember him? Mr. Newton that figured out gravity. Apple fell from a tree. How many of you see gravity? Well, let me back. Some of us who are older see gravity in a way, right? Because you can nip it, tuck it, stuff it. You can do what, but it's going to sag because gravity is real. But here's the reality for us. Like we don't really see it. It is real, but we don't see it. How about this one? Here's the last one. How about wind? How about wind? We don't see it, but we feel its effects. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 3 actually mentions the wind. He's speaking to a guy named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders of the Jews. And Nicodemus is having a really hard time understanding this concept of being born again. And Jesus is trying to tell him, look, you have to be spiritually born. You have to come to life spiritually to enter into a spiritual kingdom. And he's trying to help him see this. And this is what Jesus tells him in verse 5. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying the wind, it can't be controlled by human power or wisdom. And he's saying in the same way, rebirth and new life given by the Spirit is independent of human effort and desire and will. He's saying the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the human heart can't be controlled. It can't be seen, but its effects are unmistakable. I may not be able to see the wind. I may not be able to see oxygen. I may not be able to see gravity, but its works are unmistakable. I may not be able to to see Jesus physically, but the work of Christ and the Spirit in my life are unmistakable. 
I have assurance of what I cannot see because the one who sees me has done an unmistakable work in my life. See, on April 1st of 2000, the day that I was saved, that God saved me, Jesus didn't physically walk into that room. I didn't see him physically. I didn't put my finger in his nail-scarred hands. I didn't put my hand into his side. But the work that God did that day, through the preaching of the gospel and through the Spirit, the Father revealed Jesus through the Spirit. And God did an unmistakable work in my life. And that was the day that I declared, my God, my Savior, my Lord, my God. And he went from some obscure idea that didn't really impact my day-to-day life to taking me to a place where he walks with me, he talks with me, he's very much alive, he's so ingrained in the fabric of my life that existence without him now would be unthinkable. The effects were unmistakable. See, I don't have to see him with my physical eyes when he's breathed life into my soul. I don't have to touch his nail-scarred hands when he's touched my heart. I don't have to put my hand in his spear-pierced side when he's placed his spirit inside of me. And when we recognize the weight of our sin and the hopelessness of death and in desperation cries out to him, he saves us. When the eyes of our heart are opened and through faith we see Jesus resurrected, he resurrects our spirit. When the scales fall off of our spiritual eyes, Jesus becomes not an obscure idea, but the greatest reality in my life. And when my callous, cold heart meets the love of Jesus, it finds, finally finds what it's been looking for all along. And when we realize his hand is reaching down to take hold of us and listen, and in faith, we take hold of him. He does what no one else can do. He breathes life into the spiritual lungs of dead men and women and calls them to live again. 